the day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. He hijacked the plane, claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in four parachutes. He jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen again. The FBI claims to have investigated over a thousand people, including dozens of deathbed confessions. In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. How's it going, everyone? Today on the show, we have Drew Beeson. Drew reached out to me about his suspect, Ted Braden, and I was very interested to hear what he had to say about him. Ted Braden was special forces and a freelance mercenary just before and possibly after the hijacking as well. To anyone already inside the Vortex, Ted Braden is a name you've heard several times before. It's a very interesting story, and Drew makes a great case for Braden. I had a good time talking to Drew, and I think you'll really enjoy this one. Ladies and gentlemen, Drew Beeson. All right, Drew, well, let's go ahead and get started. How did you get sucked into the Cooper Vortex? I got sucked in pretty hard, you know, and I've always known about D.B. Cooper for a long time. I mean, I'm 49 years old, and I can't remember when I first heard about it. It must have been a long, long time ago. You know, the first time it probably got into my memory was probably Unsolved Mysteries, like a lot of people. Then maybe the In Search Of show about D.B. Cooper was really good. But I think what really pulled me into the Vortex is shows like Coast to Coast and Ground Zero and, you know, having the D.B. Cooper shows and when Galen Cook came out and was talking about his suspect, uh, William Gossett, and it just really pulled me in. I was like, oh, that sounds great. You know, who could it be? And, you know, there's this Kenneth Christensen guy they're talking about with uh, Brad Meltzer's show. And I think it was the advent of all the shows coming out, the radio and the TV stuff, the resurgence of D.B. Cooper that really pulled me into the vortex and kind of being fascinated by all these characters of these different suspects, because even outside of maybe if they were or were not D.B. Cooper, they're so interesting on their own. I mean, people like uh, Barb Dayton slash Bobby Dayton and just fascinating people. That's a great example. Exactly. Just I think that was really even Rekka and Rackstraw, too. I mean, whether or not they're Cooper, it's incredible. An incredible story. Oh, it's a great story. I've looked at him a, a lot and, uh, and I'll definitely be talking about uh, him as well. And then, so what led you to start doing your own research? I think it was just really getting, you know, when I get pulled into the vortex was reading some of the message boards and hearing about, you know, some of the other people that were considered that, you know, aren't your everyday people, you know, like some of the uh, more, uh, what you would call, um, you know, long shot candidates, you know, would kind of catch my interest because every time, you know, I saw a new name, I wanted to dig into it and see, could this person really fit the mold maybe better than this other guy that this person says it's got to be him and this person says no it's not him it's him so i think it was just kind of uh reading a lot of you know websites like the drop zone and any kind of db cooper forum reddit things like that and finding some of these dark horse guys that were kind of interesting to me and so who did you really land on as your suspect uh ted b Braden, 100 percent definitely it's 100% my guy ted Braden. Mm-hmm. and how'd you come to him as the as your suspect as db cooper i think i was reading drop zone and i saw some um, 
some posts about them, and it was always when they were talking about the, you know the Vietnam stuff and how Cooper had to you know possibly been someone in the special forces, and that you know somebody that would have done something that's audacious would have uh, definitely would have you know had the special forces kind of training, and they said you know the, the way the whole hijacking went down to me seemed like a you know special forces operation and uh a lot of those posts were made by uh the venerable bruce smith you know the 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 son of the db cooper world that all the other planets rotate around um <laughs> would put some stuff on there about Braden, and uh you know i read them all and it was just fascinating i mean even if he wasn't cooper like you know these other people we were just talking about it just on his own is just a fascinating story that he has and then when I started to, to fill in the gaps and me believing that he's probably the best candidate out there to be D.B. Cooper, it just made it even better. I mean, what a fascinating story about this guy. Well, tell us a little bit about Ted Braden. I mean, I don't I don't know much about him other than he went AWOL in Vietnam and was caught as a mercenary in Congo. And then they just kind of let him go. And everyone was kind of like, why did he get let go? It must be something above our head. Exactly. That's one of the most fascinating things about Braden is how they did just let him go out of nowhere. And, you know, where it starts and it's it's really hard to find out stuff about him other than than, uh, you know, what what uh, you can find on some of those boards. And, you know, the main body of what you can read about him was a article in Ramparts magazine, the October 1967 issue uh, has quite a bit about him. And when I read that article, about him where he talks about, you know, going AWOL from Vietnam and uh, his whole trip of uh, leaving Vietnam and get, and coming back to the United States briefly, you know, over, uh, I think it was the uh, Thanksgiving and uh, Christmas of 1967 and in, in early 1968, he goes over to fight as a mercenary in the Congo, like you mentioned. And that article, you know, details all that. And, you know, the first thing, and I could just read the, the, the front page of that Ramparts article and this just, just blew me away when you read it about him and especially in the context of could he be db cooper so it reads mercenary soldier 14 years military service available for, for position immediately qualifications 101st airborne division world war ii master parachutist 911 log jumps including 695 free falls ex-lieutenant and ex-sergeant u.s army operated in four countries in southeast asia and two in Africa, experience in the use of weapons, demolition, sabotage, infiltration, especially as training and directing hunter-killer teams, 23 months of, jung of jungle operations in and out of Vietnam, willing to organize and or direct insurgency or counterinsurgency teams, whichever is appropriate to non-CIA-supported employer. References can be checked with U.S. Army, U.S. Special Forces, CIA, and Five Commando, Congo, other talents by confidentiality, uh, confidential inquiry only. Absolute loyalty guaranteed to highest bidder. Contact Ted B. Braden. How do you, I mean, that's, that's awesome. That's awesome. I mean, when I read that, I'm like, this guy's fascinating. He put out an ad for himself. Yes. I mean, it's, it's literally the lead into the, uh, to the magazine article, but yes, I think it, it was an actual ad he put out there for himself. I mean, I, I think it was kind of a parody in a way, but I think it was just a, a creative intro into the into the story about him going AWOL from Vietnam to go fight as a mercenary. It's like a resume of this is how badass I am. Yeah, and it really is. And I mean, and that's another thing I would pick up from the message boards, it, or, you know, and I think it's probably uh, Bruce probably wrote it. 
and it said, uh, you know, this candidate Ted Brad Ted Braden is the one that the other commandos that were in special forces thought would be DB Cooper. And I'm thinking, man, these are the these this is the the badass of the badasses. I mean, he's got to be the top when the other guys that are in special forces that do all kind of crazy night jumps and all this other training pointed to him. I mean, like if anyone could have pulled that off, it's him, Ted B. Braden. It is interesting that a bunch of special forces guys said, when I heard about it, I thought it was Ted Braden. That, that's true. I, I think that is really the first thing that really hooked him on to me as, as a D.B. Cooper candidate. Two of the main guys that were really saying that were one is named Sergeant Billy Waugh and another one was named Major John Plaster. And when you just you know go and Google either one of those two names and read about those guys, these guys are hardcore badass guys. I mean, Billy Waugh's got a resume like you would not believe. I mean, just heavy combat, three wars, uh, just any kind of training you can think of, just crazy stuff, as well as plaster. I mean, these guys are well-known. These aren't just a couple of uh, never-heard-ofs out there. I mean, when you look up the people that were saying he was D.B. Cooper or definitely could be, it was high, you know, pretty badass guys themselves that, you know, you would think could also do it. But they're the ones saying, no, him. So I think that's really what pulled me into to Braden. Where was Braden around the time of the hijacking? That is a mystery. That is a true mystery. We really don't know. Uh, you know, as the story goes, he got, after he got picked up fighting in the Congo, he was, um, you know, kind of turned in by a friend of his, a colonel down there. I think it was Colonel Peters, which was getting some heat from the government and the CIA, you know, it's, it's, you know, Braden writes it, you know, they think it would be an embarrassment for an American mercenary to be killed down in the Congo. So uh, they go down there and, and apprehend him and put him in a hotel down there and interrogate him for a week. As, as the story goes, they, they uh, take him back to Fort Dix and then they uh, put him in a cell. And that's, you know, the people could, that were at Fort Dix that write a couple of accounts of it was he was in a, uh, a larger cell than any other inmate, something like that. He had a TV in his cell, they said, which was highly unusual, especially for someone of his rank. You're not a high rank would have a TV in his cell. They just said, this is really weird. You know, somebody's protecting this guy, and it's obvious. You know, he went AWOL from Vietnam, but he's already being handled with, with such kid gloves. So I think it was coming up to the date of his court-martial, and someone called, you know, hours before, something really close to the time of it, and they said, well, we can't have it today. And, and the reason was, we don't have enough MPs on base. And they're like, really? This is Fort Dix. There's MPs everywhere. This is this is a joke, right? And they were like, no, just call it all off. So, you know, longer story short, they went ahead and gave him a, a general discharge, a general discharge, just uh, uh, one step below an honorable discharge. And uh, we're, we're just going to let him go. And when they lined up everybody to leave, you know, all the ex-prisoners, you, you usually line up by rank, the highest rank in front. Well, he was just a master sergeant, I guess, at the time. And they moved him to the front of the line. So there was already something going on. You know, he was getting, you know, this somebody was protecting him from high above. And rumors were it was a uh, uh, general John Singlob. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but uh, uh, what some he's somebody that was a co-founder of the CIA, and they said he was a, a, a friend of Braden somehow. And they and a lot of people speculated he might be the one protecting him like that. And uh, another interesting part of it was before he you know agreed to all this, and they were trying to let him out. He had some sort of special wristwatch, and he was. Not wanting to, you know, he didn't want to sign off on anything until he got that watch back. I mean, it's like something out of a movie. He, I mean, I don't know if it was some kind of CIA given watch or what it could do, 
but he was really holding out for that watch. And at the end of the day, they wouldn't give it back to him. So he you know, took his general discharge, signed a bunch of papers, agreed to never join the military again. And his whereabouts since were are really up in the air. I mean, at some account, you know, sometime after the hijacking, he was apparently driving a truck for Pittsburgh class. Um, there's another account from a, a guy in the military that said he ran into someone on base somewhere. It's a major. And they said, oh, yeah. And he brought up the whole Braden case and what happened at Fort Dix. And the guy said, oh, yeah, I've heard of Ted Braden. I saw him in Vietnam in, in 72 or 73, something like that. And uh, he goes, he was just, uh, you know, working for the CIA. And the whole reason they brought him in was because his cover was blown down in the Congo and this whole story. And the guy, you know, and, and it didn't wash with the guy running into him at a truck stop pretty much the same year. It's like he couldn't have been in two places at once. So we don't know. Maybe that guy was just trying to throw him off course or what. But where he was during the hijacking. I really don't know. I mean, I, I can't even place him in Washington state. I know he's been all over the world, but uh, don't know where he was during the hijacking. But I think he was on flight 305. Do you know what he was doing in Congo? Uh, in the Congo, he was signed up to be a mercenary because for Ted Braden, it was all about the money. He states pretty unequivocally in the uh, Ramparts article that when, you know, he fought in World War II, lied about his age. He was born in, uh, 1928 september 24th 1928 and on his record for uh when he signed up for world war ii he put 1925 as his birthday just so he could make the make the age to get in and you know had paratrooper training everything over in world war ii 101st airborne and then he clearly states when he went over to vietnam that it was not for the glory or anything like it it was just because it was a job that he was good at you know being in special forces and when he was over there, he would do a lot of black market stuff and always, always trying to make money. He was always about the money. So when he heard that he could probably make about double what he was getting paid to be a sergeant first class over in Vietnam, he could go be a mercenary and make twice what he was making over in Vietnam. And he seemed to think nothing about going AWOL to go do it. That's a bold move. Definitely a bold move. So I can really tell you what I thought that was kind of what I had mentioned to you before by the email was something I thought was hiding in plain sight was really knowing that ramparts article backward and forward. And then reading what is known as the DB Cooper letter number six. And that is one of the letters that, um, Tom Colbert got released from his FOIA act when he was doing the whole master outlaw thing about Rackstraw. He got all that FOIA stuff released, which included uh, what they call D.B. Cooper letter number five and uh, D.B. Cooper letter number six. And FOIA for the uninitiated is Freedom of Information Act. Yes. Yes. Sorry. Yes. That's exactly what it is. So uh, fortunately for me, I, I was, you know, this the, the Ramparts article was pretty fresh on my mind and I read it pretty close to the uh, what they call the D.B. Cooper letter number six. And I thought immediately... D.B. Cooper letter number six just stands out from all the other letters. They're all different from from the other. Uh, you know, the first couple letters were the cutouts, you know, the one that was cut out from Playboy, system that beats the system, all this kind of thing. Totally, you know, different than the rest. But I was really parsing the words of uh, this, this letter number six. And it's the only letter that's not signed D.B. Cooper. It's signed, sincerely, a rich man. 
and that really piqued my interest. And the letter is actually dated March 28, 1972. Today is March 28th. It's uh, 47 years ago This that this letter was dated, the Cooper letter number six. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was cool. That's why I definitely wanted to do it on that anniversary. So anyway, it's a short letter, but uh, I'll read it for the audience. And it's dated March 28, 1972, sent to the Portland, Oregonian newspaper, Portland, Oregon, starts out, gentlemen, this letter is to let you know that I am not dead, but really alive and just back from the Bahamas. So your silly troopers up there can stop looking for me. That is just how dumb this government is. I like your articles about me, but you can stop them now. D.B. Cooper is not real. I had to do something with the experience uncle taught me. So here I am a very rich man. Uncle gave too much of it to world idiots and no work for me. I had to do it to relieve myself of frustration. I went out of the system and saw a way through good old unk. Now you know, I am going around the world and they will never find me because I am smarter than the system's lackey cops and lame duck leaders. Now it's uncle's turn to weep and pay one of its own some cash for a change. And please tell the lackey cops D.B. Cooper is not my real name sincerely a rich man so i really you know let that sink in and then i i uh look back at the ramparts article and it was just you know something kind of benign at first but i just thought you know kind of piqued my interest here's the last paragraph i'll read from the ramparts article the first half is written by a guy named donald duncan and i'll get to him you know which kind of leads into what he's going to tell you about and then Braden starts writing in the first person about his experience leaving Vietnam and going to fight in the Congo, like we talked about. So here's the last paragraph from that. It says, I need work, and I don't mean driving somebody's truck. There is a great need for people with my talents, but unfortunately, the CIA is doing the hiring or the others. Because of the CIA lack the funds to make a contract interesting, evidently, I'm on the agency's blacklist, and that makes it difficult to contact other employers from this country. Those who can use my help in Latin America are trying to fight using indigenous and foreign idealists, which means no money for the professionals. It's too bad Strasner, Rojas, and Somoza are in so tight with, in quotes, Sam. Otherwise, they'd pay well. I'd like to go back to the Congo, but I don't think they'll let me. Too bad because the anti-Motubu boys are making a bundle. And I'm thought, I don't really see people abbreviating uncle and sam like that I, I read a lot about vietnam and other stuff i i just that's most people when they want to reference uncle sam they say uncle sam so i thought you know one cooper letter here he's calling him unk and over here in the Braden article he's calling him clearly sam and then your evidence is again in the cooper letter uncle and i thought eh, maybe something there and i just thought the whole gist of it sounds like Braden. it's all about money so also in the ramparts article which was written by a guy named Donald Duncan. He was also, uh, he was the military editor for Ramparts magazine, which was uh, pretty much a political magazine. And he was the military editor and he was a really highly decorated special forces guy. And he, he turned down a, a promotion when he was over in Vietnam because he saw so many atrocities that uh, he came, you know, turned down the promotion, came back to the States. And he was a, a huge, you know, vocal, outspoken critic of the Vietnam War. And uh, he knew Braden from Vietnam. I don't know how well, but he definitely knew him. And uh, he's writing the article and he writes the beginning of it uh, talking about, you know, when Braden comes in and it says, it says, Braden had a penchant for asking credible favors of people, whether they be short or long-term acquaintances, 
On what started out to be a normal day at Rampart's offices, he walked in with a dunk old buddy to ask for help. He blithely explained he was looking for a mercenary group to join, and could I help tide him over? Well, there it goes. He just called this guy Dunk. His last name is Duncan, okay? That's where he gets Dunk. Well, Duncan's name was Donald. He went by Don. Every article you'll find about him will put Don in quotes. He never went by the name Dunk. This is obviously somebody that likes to shorten names. <laughs> That's clear to me. Here it goes. Unk, you got Dunk, and, and he's talking about money. He's talking about experience. Uncle taught me. I read this Cooper letter number six, and that's Ted Braden. Ted Braden wrote that letter. I'm convinced of it. Can I put him on that plane? No. I mean, I'll never be able to convince somebody else that it's him for sure, but I'm just what I'll tell you is he wrote this letter. That's all I know, and I don't think Ted Braden would have wrote, wrote this letter claiming to be D.B. Cooper if he wasn't. And I think the whole purpose of him writing it was just kind of like, not really bragging, but just like, hey, call off all the hoopla. You know, I'm alive. I've traveled. You know, I don't really like you, but just stop all the nonsense. I think that's the whole gist of it. But it was all about the money for Braden and nobody more qualified to make that jump than Ted Braden. Yeah, I tend to like the special forces theory just by the fact of how cool he was able to keep on the plane. I don't think that's a skill set mm -hmm. that the average person has. They definitely didn't. And if anybody knew you could jump out of a 727 aft would have been somebody like Braden in the Special Forces. They could have easily done it. I mean, these guys were trained to jump out at night, all kind of weather conditions, heavy, dense jungle with an enemy down there waiting to kill them all. I mean, you know, a lot of that stuff in Laos and Cambodia, they, they couldn't get caught. So heavy stress, heavy pressure. And by all accounts, Cooper was cool. I mean, he was very cool. And if you look at these other suspects, they just don't seem to have that aspect. I mean, Braden was truly a, a gentleman bandit. You know, the, the, one of the names for his, his special forces group is uh, the Silent Professionals. Well, I think D.B. Cooper was definitely a silent professional any way you look at it. I mean, he just lines up with, lines up with the way he was. I mean, he could be a very nice, polite guy and come off as somebody that was more of a an executive type, but be this badass that could, that could even come up with that in the first place. You have to think it was never done before. He, I mean, they, they say that he had a general technical score in the army of 150. And if you kind of extrapolate what his IQ would have been from that 150 general technical score, it would have been very high. He was very intelligent. And Cooper was very intelligent doing things like asking for his handwritten notes back. That, that just takes a, a higher level of thought. So if you compare, like, by contrast, uh, Richard McCoy's hijacking versus the D.B. Cooper hijacking, they're completely different in so many ways. Oh, yeah. I mean, McCoy stumbled all over the place. And actually, a, a little known fact, I don't know why, which is true, when McCoy got on the plane to do his hijacking, he left his handwritten notes that his wife wrote for him, for him by hand in the airplane terminal. Somebody that worked for the airline had to go walk into the plane and say, hey, did anybody leave this behind? And it literally was written on it. I don't know if there was an envelope over it, but it said uh, uh, hijacking uh, Oh, that's notes. great. Literally written on it. And he leaves it in the terminal. This That was not D.B. Cooper that would have done that. Man, I have not heard that before. That Yes. When you go back and read those details, they're, they're shocking how, how different it was. I mean... Anybody that, that had an account of the McCoy hijacking said he was very nervous. 
He went into the bathroom to put on his makeup. He was calling attention to himself way before he even planned to. I mean, and he also bragged about the hijacking, which led him to being arrested two days later. <laughs> oh, yeah. A Ted Braden would have never done that, nor a D.B. Cooper, who I think are the same, but completely different. You know, that's just why I really like Braden so much. And it fits the mold of, of a D.B. Cooper and what he did and, and being that audacious and going back to special forces. There's just not really many people that would have known how to jump out of that plane. It's a completely different deal to jump out of a 727. That's why these other Cooper suspects have maybe, you know, they were maybe had jump wings from World War II or something like that. Like you have LD Cooper. I'm not even sure they ever proven that he was in any kind of uh, combat or war or what his jumping skills would have been. And uh, I know, um, you know, I think uh, William Wolfgang Gossett is a, is a great Cooper suspect. I'd probably put him in at number two, but you know, when, and I know he had some, uh, uh, survival training. It was in World War II. He was in Vietnam, and he was a uh, he was a desk guy in Vietnam. He didn't see any action in Vietnam whatsoever. He was a military uh, law analyst or something like that. He was, had a desk job. That's why I just really think that Cooper was this guy that was special forces and really in tune with being able to make that jump from a 727, which is completely different than jumping out of any other plane. I mean, I've heard it described as the first time it's like being tackled hard from behind when when you know when the wind hits you even. And, uh, another person wrote about it, you know, uh, uh, just a skydiver said when he did it, cause you know, people wanted to try to do it, but just because of Cooper, they want to see what it felt like. And they, the guy said the first time it felt like his, his, uh, his, uh, uh, parachute backpack and his arms felt like they were just going to get ripped out, you know, it just, just from the force of it. So it, I just really believe he was a special forces type person knew exactly how to jump out of that plane and what he was doing. And knew he would, would, knew he could survive. Yeah, I mean, he planned to jump at night in the rain into the woods. That's not your typical commercial skydiver at the time. wasn't doing that. No, not even close. It's it's completely different. And you know, and a lot of the pilots at the time didn't even really know that could be done. It, it was very rare knowledge, and and uh, that's why when you always hear these things early on, the FBI would say, "Oh, he wasn't. He Cooper wasn't an experienced skydiver. He took the less. You know, he took an inferior parachute. He didn't take the uh, the uh, paracommander, the steerable one, or something like that." And that's all been kind of you know through the years now. I think it's been completely thrown away. I mean, I think it was obvious he was a highly skilled jumper. And, you know, one expert they had, I think, at one of the D.B. Cooper forums said if he had used that other parachute, that, that the force of that wind coming out of a 727 probably would have torn the canopy in half. He definitely choose, chose the right parachute. And even uh, Tina Mucklow that saw him strapping on the rig said he looked like he knew exactly what he was doing. She had a, a, a hand-printed card of instructions on how to do it, and he just tossed it aside. And that's, that was, from her, pretty fresh in her memory back then. So he obviously knew how to jump. So that's another thing that kind of leads you down the road of, is the FBI covering this up? And I'm thinking certain people there, I believe they are to ever come up with a theory like, yo, oh, not an experienced jumper. It was just a, you know, he just had a death wish. That's why he asked for his notes back. It just makes no sense to me. Do you think Braden had any help in getting this covered up or keeping it unsolved? Uh, I don't know. I, I think if he did, you know, it definitely would have been the FBI and it could have been the same reason he got let go after going AWOL. Because if you look at all the other suspects that we know about, 
who else would they want to protect but a Braden? Because he had a lot of knowledge. I mean, not just the you know the, some of this stuff that went on in Vietnam, but who knows what else he knew? And it could have just been that relationship he had with uh, General Singlob, or I hope I'm saying that right. I never heard it actually pronounced, but uh, could have been him protecting him. I just can't see anyone else, not a Robert Rackstraw or uh, – Definitely not a, a Kenny Christensen or a McCoy or any other any other of the Cooper players would have been protected from the FBI like that. And you know why why would you even have to do a Freedom of Information Act to get information on a forty eight year old skyjacking case that they've already closed the file on? Why would it take suing them to get you know these new letters out and? The, some additional notes they had. Well, what would the purpose of that be? I mean, what are they? they it, it definitely seems to me like they're hiding something, and I can't see any other suspect that they'd want to protect other than someone like a Braden, because he did know a lot, and he did have some connections because it's been proven. I just don't see anyone else being a better qualifier than him. Do you know anything about Braden's life after the hijacking? Very little, and it's really strange. I'm kind of a, you know, as a pastime, I like to do genealogy a lot. And that's another thing that was sucking me into the vortex because I was just con- you know, convinced I would find it. You know, maybe Ted Braden was related to, uh, to uh, you know, Brian Ingram or something that planted the money on the Tina Bar. And then, you know, here, you know, actually his first cousin's over there. And did you did you know that Florence Schaffner was from Arkansas? And she's only from an hour uh where she grew up is about an hour away from uh, Brian Ingram lives now and where most of his family's from. So I was kind of on this conspiratorial ride and, and seeing if anybody was related like that. And I really couldn't find anything. And, and uh, I'm good at finding all that kind of family stuff. And with Braden, you can't find anything. I can't even find his birth on a census. I mean, it appears he was married at least twice, probably three times. And you can find some information on his last wife who passed away. Obviously, I don't know if I mentioned, but, you know, Braden himself passed away. You can find his death record. I think it was in, uh, I believe it was in 07. And uh, so uh, you can find, you know, like an obituary for his wife who worked at a truck stop and and things like that. But there's just, there's just almost nothing about him. It's almost like it's just been expunged from the internet. It's just really strange. So, you know, one weird thing, and I don't want to go down a really crazy rabbit hole, but it's just worth mentioning, and some of the listeners might enjoy it, but when you go to these search sites, you know, like People Finders, uh, Intellis, stuff like that, you can, you know, pull up somebody and, and it'll say you know, what who the relatives are or possible relatives or possible uh, acquaintances or, or uh, contacts or whatever they show. And, and I think one of the main re- you know ways that pulls their information was, did these people ever share an address together? You know, did they both live at, you know, 25 Maple Street in 1975? And if they did, it, it would probably lump their names together and enlist either as a, a relative or possible associates. And then certainly it'll pull up things like a marriage, maybe, or a father-in-law or something. It'll pull up people close to you. So I would do that to Braden. And of course, it would pull up his last wife and, uh, and just a few other people with him. And uh, one of one of the names was, and I tried to find, you know, these people where they were just going down the trail. And one of them was uh, the name of Harold Jenkins, and uh, obviously that's Conway Twitty's real name, so uh, I don't think it was him, but it just pulls up this guy named Harold Jenkins. I thought, okay, fairly common name or whatever, so I'm trying to find out things about where's Braden, how he might know this guy, Harold Jenkins. So just you know, messing around on the internet and Googling it, 
it pulls up an episode of uh, the TV show Prison Break, who had, I don't know if you're familiar with that show. I, I kind of like it. I've watched some of them, but not all of them. It's been on for a long time. And I usually don't ever make it through a whole series that lasted years like this one did. But, you know, there's a storyline in the TV show Prison Break that's based on D.B. Cooper. Right. Uh, loosely based, but about, you know, the real the real D.B. Cooper, which is in their show, uh, you know, this guy that's in the prison. And, uh, you know, I didn't see this this exact uh, episode of Prison Break, but I read about it. So this guy in, in in the jail is supposed to be, you know, the real D.B. Cooper. He confesses to being the real D.B. Cooper. And then he gets out and uh, he's going to show him where the, the money is from the hijacking. And in this show, it's actually, you know, it's not $200,000. It's like a couple of million or, you know, they, they play with the facts. And the, the bills were actually $100 bills and not 20s, as we know, is actually what D.B. Cooper got. But uh, there's a scene in that where uh, there's they uh, this guy gets out who's supposedly the real D.B. Cooper. He goes to a gas station and uses a hundred dollar bill from the skyjacking and the gas station attendant somehow looks at the bill and, and I don't know, somehow ties it into thinking, you know, it's D.B. Cooper. And they check it out and the serial numbers match. Well, the guy that either that wrote Prison Break named that character and all he does is 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 a gas station attendant, but he decides to give him a full name and it's Harold Jenkins. And I just thought, that's kind of strange. <laughs> just like, uh, I don't know if it means anything, probably not, but I just thought it was one of those little funny little twists you get into. I don't know. I mean, there's like, I've said it before, there's an infinite number of male names. So for it to be the exact same one. Oh yeah, there are. There is an infinite number. And, 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 and you know, Harold Jenkins as itself is not really uncommon but there's still only a finite amount of them and to tie it with db you know a db cooper show was pretty weird because there's only like three or four names that are attached to Braden himself you know either through his his ex-wife or not so i was trying to track this guy down so like when you you click on him and it's an african african-american gentleman that lives in chicago and he's uh from the best I can tell, he's a, a Vietnam veteran because the other people he's friends with, and this is through a, a Facebook account I could see, and uh, they're all Vietnam vets. A lot of them, few special forces, and uh, you know, you know, a lot of these guys are Vietnam vets. So I thought that was you know kind of a funny little, a funny little twist of Braden when I was going down the rabbit hole looking for Harold Jenkins. But who knows? Maybe that guy was a Conway Twitty music fan. I don't know. I, it's got to be intentional. I mean, they have to choose a name. Yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, and if you and if you look at that, and I know that you know fans of the show Prison Break, they did take names from a lot of interesting people. Like they named one of the characters after uh, one of the um, Secret Service agents that was with JFK when he was shot. Then they named a couple of their main characters, you know, at least you know half of their names after a couple presidents. I think one of them's Lincoln something, and you know, that show's kind of notorious for kind of weaving in these names and kind of conspiratorial weird stuff and uh i thought that was pretty interesting i mean how they just landed on harold jenkins it was just really amazing yeah that's crazy and the money and i'm sure he got that whole idea from probably the you know the charles Lindbergh kidnapping where you know they found the, the kidnapper the Lindbergh baby because the guy passed off a a, a gold certificate you know it was like a i think it was a ten dollar bill for like a dollar's worth of gas and it was but it said you know back by you know, gold or whatever. And those were already outlawed for a year. So the guy was a student at the gas station and wrote down the license plate and they wound up catching the, you know, the killer of the Lindbergh uh, baby that way. So I, it's probably where he got the idea from, but where, he, but obviously the, the, the guy that 
in the Lindbergh story was not named Harold Jenkins. So he didn't get the name from there. So I, I, I do think that's an interesting thing. Using genealogy to kind of track his whereabouts or his activities or connections is a really interesting way to look at the case. Have you made any connection with mm-hmm. family or friends of Braden? Not really. You know, I, I came, I would get, you know, feel like I was really getting warm at times. And I would kind of run into a wall, you know, trying to find, you know, with somebody really, you know, because a lot of people, there's always this stuff well, about the money. We always, you know, when we talk about D.B. Cooper, it's one of the first things people want to go to is the money. Was the money planted or do you think it got there by nat- by natural means? And I'm really undecided. Oh, I planned on after mm-hmm. I'm really undecided on that. But I would always think before I was always convinced that the money was planted somehow. And then I love the first part of Tom Colbert's story where he, he got sucked into the Cooper vortex, I guess, when he heard this whole story about, hey, you see that hippie couple over there? Uh, they're going to find you know some of the D.B. Cooper money in, in a few days, and then somebody's watching TV, and there they are. They're the Ingrams on TV with the, with the, you know, the $5,800 of the real Cooper cash that lines up. And I just thought, man, that, just sound, that part of it to me just sounded so believable. It just did. That's a very interesting story. Oh, it's a very interesting story. I don't know how it led him to Robert Rackstraw, who I'm convinced is not D.B. Cooper. But that part of itself, I thought, in of itself was great. You know, I just thought, yeah, there's something there. So I really was, if you could find out where, like, uh, Florence Schaffner, who's from Arkansas herself, and, you know, her, her first cousin or second cousin was Brian Ingram's brother or something, you know, anything like that. I'm like, see, 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 there it is. But I couldn't really find that. You know, you find some things that were pretty close like that, but nothing, no smoking gun. But you've never made contact with any of Braden's relatives. There really aren't any that you can find there. There, 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 there none. I, I cannot. There's one record where it, it looks like uh, a man had died at age 45 and his father was a Ted B. Braden and the mother was somebody else. And I think that could be him. There's just so little about him. It's it's literally like the Internet's been scrubbed because usually the a plain, you know, John Doe, you could find out some basic stuff. I mean, you could find that Ted Braden was born in Niles, Ohio, but then you can't even find the census. I, I haven't even I'm good at it, man. I've never been able to find his father's name, his mother's maiden name. Uh, I've, I've, I've searched and searched. I think his first wife was named Mary because he uh, born in Niles. But I think sometime before high school, he moved to Toledo, Ohio, before he uh, joined up in World War II. And then I think when he got back, he did uh, three years in college at the University of Toledo, I believe it was. And then there's just almost nothing past that. Nothing. It's like it's almost like he hardly existed. I mean, he lived in Pennsylvania. I think he drove a truck for Pittsburgh Glass. Uh, and pretty quiet after that. I think he might have gotten a DWI like when he was older. It's something you know I saw a record of, and it, other than that, nothing. It's almost like he's just been erased. Does that make you lean more towards that somebody's covering this up for him? I think I, I really do. I really do. I think there's some kind of force there that doesn't want people to know the puppet master that it was him for whatever reason and i know there's one article i'd sent you that that, that that bruce smith i think it was a six-year-old article that bruce wrote about uh talking to that airline pilot that he was uh put in contact with and and the pilot was telling him about going to uh some training about how not to get skyjacked i guess it was you know a couple of years or so after the uh after norjack and uh you know they were talking about and the, you know, the, the instructor was this guy that looked ex-military, but they weren't sure kind of guy. But I think he was, and he was, you know, bringing up some references to to Cooper during his 
speech to the pilot. So when they were on break or something, the guy was over there talking to some other people like, yeah, I remember I was flying a plane that night that uh, the DB Cooper hijacking and what went on and maybe another connection he thought he had to the case. And, uh, he starts talking about, uh, you know, uh, another guy that he knew that, that said that he was, uh, piloting a plane that was doing the 727 drops over in, uh, Laos. And he said, yeah, there was about 20 guys there and, and, uh, definitely special forces and he heard that 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 db cooper was definitely one of those special forces guys that was that that was jumping in in in, uh in laos or something and and the uh instructor overheard him saying all this stuff and pulled him in a room by private said you know don't talk about this you know like you're you're not even you you know you, you could get in big trouble don't even go around spreading that kind of stuff like it really shocked the guy like why would you care you know it was like you know he was kind of uncovering the fact that he was a special forces guy and I think out of all the D.B. Cooper suspects, I think the only one that proven fact was in Special Forces was Ted Braden. Robert Rackstraw was not. He was an Army guy, you know, pretty did a lot of crazy stuff, you know, including, you know, killing an elephant over there and bragged about it. But I don't think he was ever in the Special Forces. And if Tom Colbert says he was, I prove it. I mean, I don't think he was. I don't think any other suspect known other than Braden was actually in the Special Forces. So maybe somebody could correct me if I'm wrong, but show me where Robert Rackstraw was in the special forces or, or anybody else, but Braden, it just always brings me back to that. Here's a question for you. So if, if there is a conspiracy to cover this up, do you think that Braden did it on his own? Or do you think that he had some direction that he was asked to do this? I think he did it on his own. There's something I've, yeah, it's something I've talked to Bruce about. I, I, I would truly think he did it on his own. A guy like Braden could have definitely done it on his own. I wish I could find this one thing I had read about one of the ways they could uh, kind of triangulate or something with a Japanese transistor. I know it's beyond me, but uh, something, how they would attach it to their parachute, and they could kind of figure out their latitude and longitude and kind of where they were. Like if he jumped out in the middle of the, you know, the, uh, the, dense, the dense woods, as it were, it would have been a, a, a pretty unknown way, only known to a special forces, how he could figure out where he was and what direction to walk to get out of the woods. Because, uh, I mean, it's pretty well known that when, when, you know, when he did jump, that he would have had no idea really what, where he would have landed uh, the way that, you know, the, the plane's flight path went and uh, really would have been, especially, and that's another thing I read that's interesting about jumping out of, a, you know, somebody telling about their experience of jumping out of a, a 727 uh for the experience of it with a you know a full dive team where they would go off you know like one after the other and stuff like that and this one guy landed like i mean 10 miles from where he thought he should land even with other people coming off behind him just because it's so much higher up even its lowest altitude that you can't pinpoint like you could jumping out of a conventional plane and uh it just really makes me think you know he was going to know how to get out of wherever he landed somehow without the help of someone on the ground, like, you know, meet me over here, what, you know, where I'm going to try to land with it. You know, if I see this bridge, I mean, the visibility would have been terrible that night. So I really think he had some method of knowing where he was to get out. Oh yeah. It it would be so hard in 1971 to orchestrate a pickup when you don't even know where you're going to be. Yeah. I don't think anyone would have been able to set that up. Like meet me here at this time. And I don't remember who that suspect was that called in. You might, I don't remember who, you know, one that called in like, I don't know, hours or so after the hijack, you know, this, and they said, oh, this might be possible if he got 
to this point, he could have ran to the phone and all that. I don't believe it. But I, I think that he would have definitely been someone that would have done it on his own. He could have done it on his own. Was Ted Braden a suspect? Did the FBI look into him? You know, to my knowledge, no. Not that it, not that not that's known. I mean, that definitely be a, another question for Bruce, but I don't think so. I don't think it was ever and uh, ever done. And I mean, that would make good sense if it was one of the ones they didn't want people finding out about. Uh, he never would have been. But it, you know, it's funny how uh, uh, Dwayne Weber can be considered a top suspect when Ted Braden's not. I mean, it, it's pretty comical. It, it truly is. I mean. Just based on, you know, Dwayne Weber's wife, Joe, who just is, a, is her one man band of saying, oh, he told me this story. You know, same with Marla Cooper and LD. I have this awesome story. And, you know, and they're getting DNA testing done. But these guys haven't looked at the master parachutist. I don't know. It just, it's, it's really kind of funny who the FBI chose to to run DNA on and who they didn't. It is really interesting. It is. I mean, really, Weber? I mean, come on. Sorry for anyone out there that thinks it's Weber, but not reality. I mean, it, it makes me think of uh, Bill Mitchell, you know, who was the college student on the flight, which, you know, talked about, you know, the D.B. Cooper having like the the double chin or whatever on his neck. So when I first heard that, I thought, OK, it's got to be Gossett. Gossett's got that. Man, it's got to be the man, you know. Uh, and uh I think somewhere it said, uh, you know, because he, he remembers, you know, with, with him getting all the attention from the, the flight attendants, especially Tina, I believe he was, you know, jealous of that. Like, why is this old guy getting all this attention? And uh, and he said, you know, if, if that suspect had been Dwayne wherever, I definitely would have not missed those ears. I mean, they were huge. He was like, how would I, you know, like, I wouldn't have missed that. It's just the guy wasn't even close. They, it is a remarkable feature on Dwayne. Without a doubt. And, and, and the same thing with Richard McCoy. Uh, even in one of his uh, FBI posters for the, you know, the hijacking that McCoy did, it said uh, the official description of Richard McCoy from the FBI in words was uh, large protruding ears that stick out. I think that's almost verbatim how the FBI quoted it. So how's McCoy doing it? And then you also, I mean, you have to kind of bring in the other suspects too and compare them. It's, you know, it's you don't want to like insult anybody else's work or anything like that. But some of these guys aren't even shouldn't even be players. And I really think Rackstraw and McCoy alone, just for their ages, I think uh, Rackstraw was twenty nine and McCoy was I think twenty eight. I don't know. They're both late twenties. They weren't even either one of them was even thirty yet. It's you know I get makeup and everything, but everyone that saw DB Cooper said mid forties. I think the first impression on a handwritten note was even the was even 50s i don't know if that was shavner or mucklow but they wrote 50s how does a guy in his late 20s gonna gonna look that way that's the first thing someone's gonna remember more than your eye color or height how does even how can you even tell how tall someone is when they're sitting in an airplane seat it's not unless they're really tall or really short I, i don't know but but some of that stuff would just be glaring especially with age and features like that. And some of these guys, age is a big one. Yeah. I just don't even know how they got on the radar. I don't. And Tina Mucklow sat next to him for hours. He lit his Mm -hmm. cigarettes. Even, I mean, if it was makeup, I think she would have noticed that. Absolutely. I think she would have noticed it immediately. I also think she would have been able to notice a toupee. Unless I mean, even if it was a Hollywood level, they would just tell something with a toupee. And I mean, if you look at, 
Sheridan Peterson and uh, Kenny Christensen, I mean, they're both, you know, they, they, they both are, are, are pretty bald guys. I mean, you would, they would have to, and even the people that believe they're, you know, those are their favorite suspects would have to admit, okay, he had to have been wearing a toupee to, you know, to an extent. Uh, or that would have been the first thing. So yeah, he was a bald guy. And then, you know, they go on to, you know, describe his other features, but I just can't think, you know, how you would get around that, you know, the, you know, suspects like that would definitely have to have worn a toupee. And with somebody being that close as proximity as she was definitely would have picked up on it. I just can't see how they would have missed it. And how was the quality of the toupees for the average dude in 1971? It couldn't have been and, and makeup. I mean, you would have to have even you would have to have Hollywood level, you know, today's Hollywood level makeup to make someone in their twenties look like they're in their mid forties. That would be like the and how old? How old was Braden at the time of the hijacking? Uh, forty four. Because in in researching this, I couldn't even find what year he was born. Yeah, he was born September twenty fourth, nineteen twenty eight. Yeah, there isn't much about him online. When you emailed me and you said you wanted to talk about Ted Braden, I was excited because there was a guy who wanted to talk about Ted Braden. But then I'm like, okay, well, I got to brush up. And I'm like, there's nothing. There's a handful of articles about Ted Braden online. But I mean, like you were saying, there isn't much out there on him. Yeah, it's almost like it's been scrubbed. It really is. I mean, when you think about it, there's no one else that the FBI would work to try to try to cover you know there goes ted we know ted did it but we don't want ted to talk and maybe ted's be, still being protected by this general singlob and the uh co-founder of the cia i mean it, it would make some sense i mean it would i mean he was definitely doing some stuff for the cia the cia i mean that that you know goes back to that watch it's i mean i read somewhere else where he would get you know all these kind of different gadgets you know kind of james bond like gadgets from the cia to do some of these more covert uh actions and uh here's another let me just read this going back to Braden because I, I mean this is just a, a great trove of information it's just this one ramparts article but this is the part where don duncan is writing about Braden before Braden talks about you know his his uh his adventure of leaving vietnam but it, this is uh from don duncan it says Braden is among those professionals who appear to have a secret death wish coupled with well-trained instincts for survival he continually places himself in unnecessary danger, but always manages to get away with it. At what time? At, at one time, he was forbidden to free fall for violating safety regulations. The rules state a jumper must pull and be able, and, and must be in the saddle before he reaches two thousand feet. Braden makes a habit of waiting until he is well below a thousand feet, falling at one hundred and seventy-four feet a second. If his main chute malfunctioned and he pulled his reserve. He would have to run the last hundred feet to get it open. With no safety restrictions on jumping in Vietnam, he had a ball. Similar, similarly, on operations deep in NLF territory, he wandered away from his team on at least two occasions, the better to seek trouble. Who better would be a D.B. Cooper than that person <laughs> described in that paragraph? I would be hard-pressed to find him. And that's article. That article is available online. Yes, actually, I found it in a PDF. I don't know how, but I did. I got this in a PDF. And, and what can we Google to find that article? Uh, Ramparts Magazine, October nineteen sixty-seven, and probably Ted B. Braden. And there is a PDF that you can download. I can't remember the exact site. 
I'm sure that's enough information that we'll be able to find it. Yeah, I, I think you you definitely can. But uh, yeah, it's just a treasure trove. And then when you go back and read it, it's just you know talking about what he did and you know he was all over Europe. If you want to go back to the, to if DB Cooper did base the name Dan Cooper on the comic book, that was a Franco-Belgian comic book. And from what I understand, you know it's about you know Dan Cooper, a pilot, a Canadian uh, fighter pilot that the comic book's based on. But it wasn't even readily available in, in Canada. I think where it was most uh, prominent was in Belgium. And Braden talks about going to Belgium on his way to fight in the Congo. And he's in Brussels for a while. And, and, and then even before Vietnam and after World War II, he was a member of uh, uh, the Golden Arrows uh, parachute team. And he was, you know, they would do parachute jumping competitions all over Europe. And he would either come in first or second. I mean, he was literally probably the the best, you know, uh, the the best parachutist alive. It's like it said, master parachutist. He was just that good. He was in a parachute team even before Vietnam. Where you know, like reading that article, he would he would definitely push the limits and always come out alive. He would take men, you know, eight men teams in Laos and Cambodia, and they said he would always get those guys back. I mean, he had wild instincts like a death wish, like it said, but he had this that the survival skills on top of it. Who better to make a D.B. Cooper? I mean, just so smart. He, I mean, just the confidence knowing he's going to make that jump. I think he went out of that plane knowing he was going to live. No doubt about it. And just none of these other guys come close to it. You know, you have Rackstraw who, uh, you know, not just the, the big glaring problem with him was his age, of course. But, you know, he would do some, some you know, it was, it was a pretty wild guy too. And he was a good helicopter pilot, things like that. But he just didn't have the... uh you know the, the the high intellectual capacity to to do what what what, what Braden could do, coupled with the skills of an advanced parachutist like like Braden was. So it's just there's no comparison. His temperament doesn't seem to match. Doesn't match at all. And 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 going back to Rackstraw and all the work that Tom Colbert did, and this really just kind of dawned on me a little more today. Uh, going back to the to the Cooper letters, which. You know, thank God for Tom Colbert got the uh, Freedom of Information Act that got letters five and six released. So he's got this guy, I think his name's Sherwood or something like that, this ex-Army guy who, and I'm sure you know about this and the listeners do, about uh, them doing the code on it. They were doing the uh, the code on letter five where it said all these, these numbers add up to uh, Army units that only Robert Rackstraw was in. So therefore, Robert Rackstraw must have written D.B. Cooper letter number five. And then you and then um, you go to letter number six, the one that I call a rich man that I know Ted Braden wrote, and the letter, and then, and then that same guy working for Colbert, I think it, you know, Sherwood, it, it says that these certain sentences, you add up the numbers. I don't know what the code is he used, but he said that that Rackstraw would have learned it in Vietnam. Like if you read a certain line, it, 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 it uh, translates to "I am Lieutenant Robert Rackstraw," you know, basically coded, you know just as a joke, like hiding his name in there. So we're, we're to believe that the guy's that intelligent to be able to make it make sense one way, but be able to embed his name and all these other clues in both letters. So the biggest thing is, is they can't have their cake and eat it too, because when you compare letter five to letter six, they are worlds apart. There's nothing in common between the two letters. Zero. I mean, the whole context is wrong. Letter five talks about You'll never find me. I wore putty makeup. I have 18 months to live. Uh, it's signed D.B. Cooper. 
uh, you know, similar to the other letters, which I never think, you know, I always thought that about the letters. Why would he sign DB Cooper when we all know it was Dan? Would he just quickly grab onto the DB moniker that quickly? I don't think so. Not somebody that was that badass to make that jump. Yeah, the public wasn't aware of Dan Cooper for quite a while. Yeah, that's true. And all these letters are signed D.B. Cooper, except for number six, which is signed a rich man. So when you compare five to six, which they both claim Robert Rackstraw has these embedded codes in both, according to, you know, Mr. Sleuth Sherwood from the army that said he was some commander over Rackstraw for a week or something. I don't know. There's nothing in common between these two letters. Number five starts out, sirs, I knew from the start I wouldn't be caught. And then you go to number six. It says, gentlemen, this letter is to let you know I am not dead, but really alive and just back from the Bahamas. So if if uh, Rackstraw wrote five, why does he need to say in six that, that he needs to let you know that he's not dead, but really alive? And that two times D.B. Cooper is not my real name. D.B. Cooper is not real. But number five is signed D.B. Cooper. It's not the same writer. But yet they both claim that Rackstraw wrote them both and embedded codes in them. It's a joke. It's really a joke. I mean, I don't know why anyone didn't pick up on letter five and six and say, you're telling me Rackstraw hid codes in both of these when there's not one thing similar to both. Nothing. Oh, yeah. When I've looked at the letters, the first thing I thought was, this is written by at least two people because these are different letters. They're totally five and six are completely different. I mean, you know, five is is not indented. Six is indented. And why would you start, if you wrote letter five, why would you have to say in six is to let you know I'm not dead? That tells you right there that the writer of number six is the first time writing any D.B. Cooper letter. Yeah, makes sense the way it's worded. He wouldn't need to say that because he had already written number five, which said, hey, uh, you know, this is why you won't catch me. I wore, I'm not a boasting man. I left no fingerprints. I wore a toupee. I wore putty makeup. I knew immediately those weren't the same writer, but yet Tom Colbert will, will tell you that Rackstraw did both of them because his army units are embedded in letter five under code. And then I am Lieutenant Robert Rackstraw is embedded in letter number six. It's preposterous to me how anyone would have missed this and not even challenged the guy on that. Let's go back to something you briefly touched on that I love talking about, which is the Dan Cooper comic book. Okay. So you believe that he had access to that comic and chose that name based on the comic book. Braden? Yeah. Um, I don't, you know, obviously I don't know for sure, but I think he, he would have been, of all the suspects, he would have been more apt to, to find it or be aware of it than any other suspect. Just from, know for a fact he was in... Brussels, Belgium, where it would have been more widely available. Also, when he was fighting in the Congo, he was fighting with a lot of well, a lot of the Belgian uh, mercenaries over there. I mean, there was a bunch of them, so maybe one of them had it. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if he personally owned one. I, I, I remember they said L.D. Cooper had that comic or something, but they could never be proven. You always hear these things about different suspects, you know, kind of like uh, Richard McCoy and the BYU tie clip. That was never even real because if, if that was true – I would say, okay, you got a really good case there, but <laughs> there's a lot of that stuff that, that floats around out there that you don't even know is fact or not. I think somebody should do an encyclopedia on D.B. Cooper just to say, this is fact, this is not, you know, this is urban legend, but no, I, I can't say that he ever did, but I, w- I would say he'd have quicker access to it. Bruce Smith's book does come pretty close to being an encyclopedia. Oh yeah, it, 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 that's true. 
he's done some great work. Like I said, he's the, he's the, he's the son that all the uh, Cooperites uh, planets uh, revolve around. He's done some great work. And I, I really think that, uh, that Bruce, I would love to hear you, you do something with Bruce, just, just with nothing but what he thinks about Braden. Cause I really know from what he's written in the past that he has a strong suspicion Ted B. Braden is D.B. Cooper. That's my hunch. Hmm. You've talked about researching on the forums. Are you on the D.B. Cooper forums? No, I've never, ever done it. You know, I I, I guess I'm kind of kind of a, a taker and not a giver there. You know, I'd see a lot of the uh, – I read a lot of it, but I never thought about it. But, you know, I see a lot of the, you know, the banter going back and forth and uh, – people getting kind of hostile when you go after their suspect and, you know, it's just kind of funny for a while, but you know, some of it doesn't seem as lighthearted as it should be, but you know, I just never did. I just, I enjoy reading it, but never, never participated. Why haven't you participated? I mean, when you reached out to me, I thought, okay, cool. Ted Braden, but then who's Drew Beeson? I mean, I don't know this guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I thought you would, that would, that might actually come up. Um, you know, kind of because I, I think I got pulled into the vortex probably about six months ago. You know, I, I would read them, but I never felt like I had anything to offer. You know, I think that was part of it. Or I'd be really scared, like, you know, what if they already know this or something? These guys know the case so well. I mean, they know every uh, piece of metal that was found on the tie. And they know, uh, you know, they talked about colored contacts because, you know, a lot of the the suspects, including Brain, by the way, have blue eyes, you know, and you know, Sheridan Peterson has blue eyes. And they'll talk about how you could have had, you know, colored contacts in 1971. And I mean, just really getting into the, the, the nitty gritty. And I was just kind of intimidated by stuff like that, I guess. I was talking to uh, another Cooper sleuth and we were talking about how a lot of these suspects, they fit and it works and you can present the case and they are DB Cooper because there's so few facts actually about the case um, that can be nailed down that when you have these suspects, it's not about proving they were D.B. Cooper because so little is known. It's more about disproving. How could it not be Ted Braden? How could it not be Richard Floyd McCoy? That That's so true. When you're presenting your suspect on the forum or somewhere else, you don't even have to make a case for your suspect. You have to defend him against a barrage of why it's not that guy. You. You do, and it's usually against the people that you know have their uh, suspect du jour, and 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 you know it is all it's all circumstantial at this point. You know we're not we're not gonna you know no one's gonna turn up a videotape of them loading that flight out of nowhere. You know maybe we you, you could hold out hope that someone finds you know some of the money somewhere, which I don't think is gonna happen. Forty eight years has to turn up any more than the fifty eight hundred dollars. I don't think the parachute's ever gonna turn up. Uh, you know, and they could keep interviewing the uh the flight the flight staff or you know their their memories are pretty much shot you know even mitchell's is you know and he was one of the young you know the youngest witness there at the time and he even admits that you know when when when, uh tom colbert gave you know showed him the photo lineup you know he looked he saw a picture of rackstraw and he said mccoy so it's like it wasn't even this skyjacking you know he's just it's just (laughs) it's been so long you know i just don't think that'll happen it's hard to figure out exactly what happened when we're talking about something that was 47, 48 years ago. Yeah. I mean, the memories aren't, you know, they're just, it's, just, it's not going to be there unless just something comes up out of nowhere. That's why when I read this, this rich man letter and I read ramparts, 
I just, I, I really would even defy people out there to show me someone writing about the military or in a book. Show me where someone abbreviates Uncle Sam number one. And if you find one, it would probably be one out of 10,000. And here's this guy saying, Unc, Dunk, old buddy. Never went by the nickname Dunk, by the way. It was always Don. And then you got over here, good old Unc in the Cooper letter. That That's as close to a smoking gun as you're going to get, in my opinion. It really is. And I think that's stronger than Kenneth Christensen uh, supposedly bought a house for cash, which was kind of a, you know, now pretty much uh, picked apart, not really exactly how it was. I mean, all this circumstantial stuff. This letter is probably better than anything else. And even, the Rackstraw stuff is really nothing there. This this one letter to me versus how he writes in Ramparts is better than anything else I've I've personally seen uh, on any of the suspects. You, you know the um, the Unabomber was caught by his brother reading his manifesto when, when the when the uh, the brother of I think it's Richard Krasinski read the manifesto. He's like, oh, that's my brother. I mean, I know it. You know, after reading it, you know, he, he knew the phrases and stuff, and that's. That's how they eventually caught him. So it's just like, you know, I, I have a degree in professional writing, which is actually a Bachelor of Science, not an art. And I'm really into uh, just the context and uh, the syntax of how words go together. So I, I really pay attention to that. That's right. Really sucked me in to how he was writing here and then how this Cooper letter was written. I'm just like, that's Braden. No one else is going to write that. Just think about any of the other suspects that would write about experience uncle taught me. I'm a rich man. Uncle gave too much of it to world idiots and no work for me. That's that's Braden. I mean, there's just to me, there's just no there's no gray area anymore. I mean, I've personally satisfied myself. I can't convince anyone else that doesn't want to be convinced. I'm not writing a book in full disclosure. I'm not doing anything like that. You don't have to pay $10 on the internet to get any more information, but <laughs> I feel personally I've satisfied myself with who D.B. Cooper was. Why aren't you going to write a book? Why don't, don't you know. want any notoriety for this? Why don't you want your theory out there, your research out there? Well, I, I want it out there. That's that. That's why the, the, I think you had the coolest venue for it. Oh, thanks, but, man. Uh, I did want to get it out there, but you know, I'm not seeking anything monetarily for it. I just really believe this is our guy. I just do. I just. Uh, I don't think he died. I think he used Ted Braden. I think he's the only guy that could have pulled that off, and and been the only guy to come up with it. The only guy that thought, you know, I could, just to come up with that idea. Who thought about that? Jumping out of a 727 with a bomb, you know, asking for four parachutes because they might think he might take a hostage with him. I mean, that's just brilliant. Asking for the notes back. I know we'll go back to, to a lot. That's someone with a high IQ. Asking for the notes back versus McCoy who left him at the terminal. I mean, it's just clear <laughs> to me. Yeah, the planning was absolutely brilliant. It was. It, it, it shows it was in the definitely... fact that he's not caught. Yeah, exactly. Never caught. I mean, somebody that can pull this off. Doesn't need to go doing victory laps and and, and cutting pick, uh, letters out of Playboy. You know, I really think that I would be bet willing to bet the farm and the ranch that um, that that uh, Kenny Christensen wrote some of those letters. I really would him or maybe even oh, gossip. Really? I really do. I mean, I have nothing to prove it really, other than some loose stuff. But uh, those guys wanted to be Cooper. You know, gossip. A guy like Gossett really admired Cooper. You know, I mean, I think he, you know, he told people that he was. He told apparently his two sons. That's how Galen Cook got on to Gossett. I mean, that guy's fallen off the map, hasn't he? I thought he was going to write a book. He went 
all of a sudden he seems AWOL. I mean, that makes me think he found something to pull him away from uh, from uh, Gossett. Uh, but, uh, you know, I just don't think those – I think those guys really wanted to be, especially a Kenny Christensen, you know, worked for the airline, you know, wasn't real happy with it. I, I think he thought that was cool. I mean, there's nothing in Kenny Christensen's life that – I mean – this guy's lived the most mundane life ever. All of a sudden, he's going to decide to hijack an airplane with a fake bomb when he's never even probably jaywalked versus <laughs> uh, go, versus Ted Braden, who the, who the other commandos, special forces, badass is saying, man, I think I'm pretty badass, but this dude is in the league of his own who's done all this crazy stuff. And you're going to tell me it was Christensen versus Braden? Not happening, man. I mean where's the logic? I mean, I'm not I, the one thing about all the Cooperites and I'm sure people that listen to this podcast, they're smart people. That's why they didn't go for the whole rack straw. You know, they watched that show and they're like, Oh man, DB Cooper, it's history channel. It's all building up. And I mean, I remember I was excited to watch that show. Oh, and then they, they get into this Baron Vaughn, whatever his name is. I mean, I thought any minute he was going to try to convince me Gary Coleman was a, was a hijacker. I mean, this thing was just going off the rails. The uh, Baron, Don winter, whatever the winter, guy that was in the area before the skyjacking. I mean, like, man, that, that show fell apart quickly and it had such promise, you know, when you're talking about, like we said, with the money and the Ingrams and them finding it, but then that thing just fell apart. So no one, no one bought that. But, uh, I think if you do look at the stuff, the body of stuff and just a guy like Braden, who else could have done it? Um, no one, no one really. What do you think is your best evidence for Braden and your, and the worst evidence against him? Uh, the best, like, you know, I'll go back to the letter. I go back to number, number six versus, versus ramparts. I think that, that with his, with his background, I mean, he would have been well more prepared than anyone else to have made that jump. Any other, other suspects, uh, the worst against him, I would say, well, one, I can't place him in Washington state, although he's been all over everywhere. I can't put him, I can't even put him in the state there in, you know, November 24th, 1971. Uh, from most accounts, I think he was probably around 5'8". They say Cooper was 5'10". I try not to get too hung up on all that because it's so easy to get around it. You know, his eye color, and that's really it. You know, he had blue eyes. I think he might have been 5'8", maybe 5'9". We don't really know for sure. It's just I think a guy that was 5'8 or so said he seemed, seemed kind of eye-to-eye to him, and that was just who knows if that could be verified. I, I would just say that. Uh, that would probably only be the only thing. I mean, but. No one else could put their suspect on the plane. I mean, some of them are local, like, you know, Christensen, but. Uh, well, if anyone could put their suspect on the plane, then it'd be over. Oh, absolutely. Game over. Do you think this will ever be solved? I really don't. I don't think it, I don't think it will be solved to a degree that would satisfy everyone. I don't. I think I think it's, it's just, there's just no way there's, you can't, how many more deathbed confessions can there be? I mean, <laughs> there's been about a thousand, I, I, you know, no one's going to believe at this point. I mean, it's kind of like, I, I, you know, I would hate to agree with the FBI, but if someone can't produce the rest of the money or the parachute, you're, it's really a non-starter. Um, and I think that's probably what it would take to convince everybody. I agree. I mean, you have to produce a substantial amount of the money. I mean, even if you could produce one bill, there's not really much evidence there. No, it's it, it's all circumstantial. Unless it was an exact suspect had a bill. I mean, if Sheridan Peterson came out and was like, "Hey, look at this bill that I have," mm-hmm. okay, then that says something. But if anyone else brings up a bill, I mean, who knows where they got that? 
that that that's that's very true. I I just don't think it's out there. Uh, it's all circumstantial. And even, I mean, they've they've found some parachutes in in Amboy and La Center, and they, they don't seem to be Coopers. Yeah, I remember they found one from someone that had bailed out of a a plane like you know, years before uh, the Cooper hijacking. That they you know they analyzed it, it was the wrong color and it wasn't it, even though they were excited about it. I think uh, Colbert's team said they found uh, one of the straps. And I don't know if that ever got proven. Yeah. Yeah. I believe they brought it in and talked to the FBI about it. And the FBI told them that it likely wasn't from where they thought it was from. Have you talked to the FBI at all about Braden? No, absolutely not. I would be kind of scared <laughs> to, I think, hey, don't tell anybody we've been trying to hide that for years. I mean, obviously Braden's dead. I'm pretty convinced of that, but, uh, no, absolutely not. But, you know, I, I, I think I'm pretty convinced the FBI has been hiding things like, you know, I go back to having to do a Freedom of Information Act for a letter from D.B. Cooper. I mean, that's what one of the things that makes the whole D.B. Cooper thing so fun. I mean, no one got killed. I mean, I'm not suggesting anyone go hijacking airplanes and definitely someone could have gotten hurt in the melee of all that craziness going on. But, uh, you know, it's fun in the way that no one really got hurt. You know, maybe there was some psychological trauma and stuff like that, which is which is bad. But it wasn't like some really you know terrible thing like a jim jones deal but uh yeah it allows you to root for him since no one was physically hurt it allows you to root for the guy like he stuck it to the man yeah stick it to the man he's you know he's a he's a folk hero and just the coolness of it you know and you go back to that composite sketch you know the the bing crosby one you know he just you know he's got the, the 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 sunglasses and the tie and the you know it just has that that coolness about him you know and they said he was really calm during the whole thing. Um, I remember seeing it, you know, watching it's, it's fun to go back and watch some of the earlier stuff on Cooper. Like you could watch, you know, watching in search of again, I know that one's on uh, YouTube with Leonard Nimoy and the, and the original unsolved mysteries, but you know, you go back and watch them and and, and you were, you might pick up something you, you, you either forgotten or hadn't heard before. And they had a, you know, one witness that was on the plane, another one that I haven't seen before on uh, I think it was the in search of one. And he said, you know, I walked back there. I was going, you know, going to the to the bathroom, and you know, I could tell something might be going on because he was talking. I think it was Tina Mucklow, and he said we locked eyes, and you know, I could tell that guy was in control. You know, he just said he <laughs> knew what he was doing. I mean, just little things like that are, are cool. So you really haven't talked to anyone else in the vortex about uh, about any of this? No, no one. And when I saw your your your. Uh, your podcast and listen to it and your intros are really cool. I thought this is a good, a, a good place to do it. You know, what do you think the reaction will be? I don't know. You never know. I mean, probably if someone had my email, I'd probably get a lot of nasty emails from uh Tom, Tom Colbert, whoever else, that are, you know, that are uh, <laughs> plugging their own, plugging their own, uh, their suspects pretty hard. And, uh, you know, that one, I just, I, I don't, that's an, <laughs> this is a non-starter for me. I'm sorry. Uh, so are a lot of the others. They just are. I mean, they're just, they're just not even close. I mean, when you read that stuff about these guys talking about a braid and you're like, man, this guy is a bad ass. And when you get into his mind, it was always about the money. It was nothing but the money. It wasn't for glory or bragging. He just wanted the money. Take the money and go. I mean, I don't know what he would have done with it. I can't, I don't know how it wound up on the Tina bar, the $5,800. I, 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 I truly believe for the most part now it may have may have been there by natural means and that just didn't make you know came separated from them somehow it's kind of hot yeah i've asked i've asked everyone about tina bar and really no one knows 
I mean, there's a couple theories. Is it planted? It's dredge? It floated downstream? It, caught in the boat propeller? No one has any idea. Caught in the boat propeller? You heard caught that one? Caught in the boat <laughs> propeller. Yes, I have a tugboat boat propeller. Yeah, I mean, it, it's crazy. How, how did the uh, how did the rubber band stay intact? I have a friend of mine saying, "How would the rubber bands? You know, there's no way. You know, I've seen. Haven't you ever seen the old rubber bands that just they, they just get so brittle? You know, just leave it in your garage for like two weeks and it's so brittle." You put it on anything, it just automatically breaks. How are the rubber bands still intact? Like, it's just... And d- did the money come to him in bank bands instead of rubber bands and paper bands? Yeah, when they, when they found it, it had rubber bands on it. And I remember that he even researched who made the rubber bands and how long they would last in, you know, the earth and elements of the Pacific Northwest. I mean, I wouldn't think they would last a week, but... They, you know, they, they, they try to. I think that was on uh, Tom K's Citizen Sleuth uh, website where it talked, it really does get into some detail about the rubber bands themselves. Oh, yeah. I talked to Tom K about it uh, in person at the last conference. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, he's done a bunch of research, but he's like, I don't know. We have no idea how it got there. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I, I really don't know. I mean, you know, the FBI could have uh, counterfeited that money just to throw people off. They could have printed. That I, would be interesting. They could have had the ability to print identical serial numbers. I, I would think uh, that's a possibility. I don't know why they would have planted it. I don't think you know that many years later would Cooper himself have to have plant the money just to throw people off his trails. You know what what was getting close to him that you know the money would have thrown off. It just doesn't make sense. I mean, I, I kind of lean towards the money got there naturally. Do you think the drop zone's accurate? Um, no. And, and you just reminded me of something talking about the drop zone. I don't remember where I read this. And if you ever heard about it, let me know. Um, it was in an, one of the Dan Cooper comics where there's like an illustration of a, uh, you know, some woods or something, but, it, but, but by the air where it was somebody claiming to be like the exact drop zone of DB Cooper or something. I, it was really interesting. I wish I could find that again, but, uh, I, I think it's probably not where they think it is, but but not too far off. So where do you think it is then? I'm not sure. I mean, you know, probably within ten miles of where they think it is. I, I remember one of the pilots saying that they, you know they were trying to make it hard on him any way they could uh, by flying the plane, maybe trying to get it off where they thought he wanted to jump or, or or things like that. You know, they were still being cautious, but they were trying to make it harder. And I know there's some discrepancies about exactly where the flight path was, but, uh, not really sure. I don't, I don't think, yeah, he, just like anything else, no one can agree. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't think, I don't really buy that. He was uh, thumping the sides to make it act like, you know, he jumped sooner than he did. I mean, that's something that someone like a Braden would have thought of. I don't think he would have jumped closer to uh, Reno. I really don't. It would have been way too more visible, uh, with the canopy and a lot more chance of getting caught. I think if it was a Braden or, you know, survival type, which I do believe it was, I think he could have, jumped into any area of that and probably came out alive and probably, you know, definitely tried to avoid the water. I think that would have been his biggest obstacle. It's too bad that there's no information on, on Braden really after this. It, it, it is, it is sparse. Uh, 
really interesting about the guy's story about saying he saw him in Nam, and then the other guy said, "Hey, you know, I ran into him at a truck stop. He showed me his rig, and which is funny because he, you know, says in the Ramparts article, and he says, I want money, but I don't mean driving somebody's truck. I mean, I want work, and I don't mean driving somebody's truck. And there he is, winds up driving the truck, but um." just don't know. And I mean, I know a lot of people also get, are, are really heavy into this tie evidence, you know, the titanium and all that. And then this guy saying that Peterson was working at, you know, with the Boeing and would have been working on the one aerial airliner that had the pure titanium. And, you know, I know Tom Case site talks a lot about the tie and he must've been some supervisor working around machinery. That's why it was a clip on in case it got caught in the machine and all that. And I'm thinking, why would you want to wear the outfit you would wear in your normal life if you were going to go hijack a plane? That's another thought I had. I'm like, why would you want to look like you do during work every day when you were going to go do this? I would want to look the exact opposite of how I look during the regular work week. So I never really understood the complete fascination with the tie particles. But, uh, you know, I know a lot of people are into that, but I don't think there's much there with the tie. Do you think there's any evidence at this point that could link could link to Cooper other than the money? Uh, probably not. I mean, just the, the money or the parachute or just some, I mean, some unbelievably strong circumstantial evidence, maybe, you know, if you could come out and prove, hey, this guy did know Ingram with the planet of the money or, or, or maybe a relationship was proven later that where something you always knew was wrong or maybe one of the flight crew knew somebody or it could be proven beyond the shadow of a doubt. I mean, outside of something like that, I don't think so. No deathbed confession. None of that's going to, it's going to, it's going to prove anything. And you didn't find that he had any kids. You found someone who died, who had a father by the same name. Is that right? Of, uh, of Braden. Of Braden. There was a, there was a man that had died that his parents, Parent, one of the the father was listed as a Ted B. Braden that could have been around the same age. He was forty five years old. Uh, obviously, died pretty young. But uh, you know, actually, we think a, a name like Ted B. Braden is pretty is, is pretty common, and it's really not. It's kind of it's kind of surprising. The, the, actually, even the, just the last name Braden is is pretty uncommon. Um, it's you know, it sounds like just a no, you know normal name, but there's it's really. There's not that many. There's there's hardly any Ted B. Bradens at all. There was one born in Indiana, which I thought I read somewhere where he was a junior, but and the father might have been from Indiana, so it could have been. But you can't find anywhere where the parents are or a marriage record for the first wife, which I believe her name was Mary. Uh, I know he lived in Toledo for a while and went to school there, but other than that, there's almost like he didn't exist. I mean, later in his life, he was in Pennsylvania, different parts of Pennsylvania. Um, uh, the last life lived in Florida for a while and maybe, uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, but it's just so little of anything. That must be frustrating to come this far with your suspect, but you can't find any more information. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I didn't run into anything that just turned me off like, Oh, wait a minute. We just found him over here. You know, that whole year it's, you know, we found this thing he wrote where he was in some other country or something, but, uh, you know, didn't find that either, but yeah, it is. I mean, I just get, I got to the point to where it was just, I don't know how far they can go. I'm still going to work on it. And I think there's some more to be found. I think that letter number six, the letter number six convinced me I had the right guy. So there, it, it's like, you have to focus, if, you know, it's, it would be too hard to focus on all the suspects equally. I mean, there's just too much out there to try to figure out or, or disprove. 
but uh, at least I know this is the right one. So there's really no need to look at any others, but still working on it. You know, maybe if I could get Harold Jenkins to, uh, to message me back, I could find out something, but he's out there. <laughs> is he still alive? Yeah, he's still alive. Lives uh, in Chicago. You know, you could call him up. I ain't never heard of no Ted B. Braden. <laughs> I mean, you just never know. It is kind of weird, though. That is weird. What do you hope to find? What would be the one thing that if you could find? One thing I would hope to find, and this is something that, um, this is something Bruce Smith could, you know, to help. I mean, because I, I like to start with what I already have and what I already know and kind of proving the theories I already have. And uh, one of the guys that uh, served under Braden in Vietnam in 1966 was a, was a guy that's still alive. His name's Jim Hetrick. And uh, I, was, I know that Bruce Smith has talked to him because I saw they were Facebook friends together. And, you know, which also leads me to believe even more that Bruce highly suspects Ted B. Braden could be D.B. Cooper. And, uh, and I would want him to ask Jim Hetrick, was Ted Braden the kind of guy that liked to shorten names? Would he just come out of the blue and just, just shorten someone's name, you know, like calling uh, Don Duncan Dunk? Was it just a habit of his? Was he, you know, because that's the pattern of this guy, which is a rare trait, you know, to meet someone and just shorten their name. Someone you didn't even know that well, just just shorten them. Like, my last name's Beeson. Or just somebody, hey, B. No one's ever called me that in my life. So just like somebody like it would just say, hey, B. That would really be a, a good supplementary piece of evidence to what I'm already doing here. It wouldn't convince me that what I've done so far is wrong if he said no, but I'm almost 100% correct. He would say, yeah, you know, he did. I didn't really think about it before, but yeah, he was, he kind of did those things. I mean, those, those little pieces I like to keep collecting and putting together to build a bigger mosaic of, of, of the suspect. But like I said, I'm convinced, I'm convinced he wrote that letter and no, that doesn't put him on the, in, in the back row of flight 305, but there's no reason he would have written that letter if he wasn't T.B. Cooper, and he sure the heck could have made that jump easier than any of the other known suspects. So that I can hang my hat on. Yeah, he was definitely a professional. The best. I mean, I've never heard the term master parachutist. That's huge. Master parachutist. That, that's why, why would the FBI claim that he was some novice because of what shoot he chose i mean that's totally been debunked i mean he was not not a novice he was the best i mean the best you know going back to ramparts talking about what you do in nom like pulling the ripcord like that close to the ground just you know he knew he was gonna live i mean but it was almost like he had a death wish yeah he sounds like a pretty interesting dude he's an interesting guy any way you look at it i mean who who just leaves vietnam just to go awol i mean you're part of the military and he just like oh, i'm just gonna leave just decide oh that can make more money down there he just you know he just leaves it's like he knew he had some form of protection somewhere and that would be kind of like the same kind of protection you would take to pulling off the hijacking just like yeah well if they catch me they'll have to let me go because i know this person or i know information they don't want me talking and they'd say like why didn't they just kill him well maybe he was being protected or maybe he had someone else safeguarding that information. If anything ever happened to him, they were going to release it. I don't know. But if of all the suspects, he's the only one I could think of the FBI would want to cover for, you know, going back to Reno. I mean, I, I don't know how much if people out there would research what happened when the plane landed in Reno, they said that the whole uh, 
police investigation team or FBI team that came on to do the you know forensics and stuff and collect everything just just did a it was like a comical botch job. I mean, they, they just discarded everything, couldn't find everything, magazines he touched. I mean, now you know that the cigarettes are missing that he that he smoked. I mean, I know back then you would have never thought DNA would exist, but how do you lose the cigarettes, really? They don't even know where they are. Or What is going on? I mean, D.B. Cooper's cigarettes. Or the glass he was drinking from. That's gone, too. Yeah, that's gone, too. The magazines, I think, are gone. Obviously, the cigarettes were lost later, but I, I do remember accounts of when that that team came to do the forensic, you know, evidence collecting on the airplane when it landed at Reno was literally like a a joke, like a circus. Like they were almost told to go screw it up. You know, I would like more accounts of that, but that that really just hints at something like they already knew who might have done this, and they just said just just start getting rid of anything that could that could lead to this guy. I don't know. I mean, kind of conspiratorial, but. Most of the stuff in the case is conspiratorial. That's true. That that is that's very true. It is, but you would think you know the FBI would want to eventually catch this person, but you know they're 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 uh, thinking that their best prospect is Dwayne Weber. You know they don't want to know about Ted Braden. They want to know about Dwayne Dwayne Weber and the, some story he told his wife. You know that no one has any cooperating facts on, or or Marla Cooper because she looks pretty, or it's just it it it's the people that they've chosen to, to focus on are, are comical. I mean, and not people that could have actually pulled it off. I mean, I think some of them, they, they don't even, they won't even, they won't even look at it. It's just, I don't know. There's definitely something going on there that they don't want. They don't want to let out. Why would they hold on to these last two letters? What was the point of that? I don't know. Why would you have to sue them for releasing letters from DB Cooper where no one died? It was, 48 years ago. What are you hiding, FBI? Come on, man. I think at the very least, they're embarrassed by the fact that they didn't solve the case. Unless, of course, there is you know a conspiracy to hide who did it going on. That's true. I mean, yeah, that is the very least. Just, just you know, embarrassing that they couldn't, but it still makes you wonder some of the moves they've made that just really make no sense. I mean, losing the cigarettes talking to these suspects but you know top suspects are just based on a story i mean nothing more i mean not no analysis of any writing i mean at least this is some writing you can say well yeah it does seem you know kind of odd but you know they just pick up people at random just based on oh yeah that was my dad <laughs> you know, it's just they were it's it's really comical but i i don't know i i just think i think they i think they know even more than they're saying i think certain people there uh, are, are pretty convinced who it was well, if someone knows something about Ted Braden or, you know, they want to disagree with you, is there anywhere people can reach out to you? Yeah, definitely. They can uh, email me at my Yahoo account, which is uh, just Drew Beeson at Yahoo.com. It's D-R-E-W-B-E-E-S-O-N at Yahoo. Awesome. And I'll make sure to put a link to that in the show notes. Drew, do you have anything else? No, that's it, man. I appreciate you uh, having me on the Vortex. I mean, it's a it's a best podcast on the internet by far. Oh, well, thank you, man. I really appreciate that. I'll have to play that back to myself several times. Uh, thanks for saying something. All right, man. All right. Appreciate you, Darren. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode on Ted Braden with my good friend Drew Beeson. If you have any information on Ted Braden, please reach out to Drew at Drew Beeson at yahoo.com so you can get this thing solved. We'll have uh, his email in the show notes as well. 
If you have any questions, comments, or if you are D.B. Cooper, let us know. You can reach us on Facebook. We are The Cooper Vortex on Twitter at D.B. Cooper Podcast or email us at dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a review. It helps us out. Thank you to Drew Beeson for coming on the show and sharing his research with us. Thank you to Russell Colbert for making this the best podcast on the internet by far. And thank you for listening to The Cooper Vortex. Vortex.